Hello and welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to relaxed, informal data storytelling uh, with some of the brightest minds in the UK uh, and me. So as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts uh, and all-round good folk. Today on the show, I'm excited to be speaking to Greg Cowan, uh, Head of Data Science for Data Innovation at NatWest Group in Edinburgh. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming on. I can't quite believe we're in February, but yeah, we're, we're here. For anyone that listens to the show, we always kind of start around post-school life, uh, so education or uh, if you decided to go down a different path. So with you, I think I'm right in saying uh, you've got a kind of background uh, with a kind of master's in maths and physics and then continued on to do a PhD in theoretical physics, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Glasgow Uni. Are you from Glasgow? Yeah. Um, yeah, from um, from East, East Kilbride, so kind of, okay, yeah. sort of, you know, modern, t- well, more modern, like one of these like, spillover towns, you know, south of Glasgow. Yeah, so. Yeah, I don't know if East Kilbride has been called a modern town before. Yeah, I think that was, that was, that was a, <laughs> a, I definitely misspoke there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm new, 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 new town, new town, it's called. Yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, nice. So was the kind of interest in physics and doing a, a PhD, was that there from kind of early on or did you do the master's in maths and physics with kind of no real expectations beyond that? I think it was just, I've always had a kind of interest in like working out, how, like knowing how things work basically. So I had that kind of natural tendency towards like sciences. So I always like to do, you know, experiments in, in the class at, at high school and then that translated through into to university. So just really getting that kind of understanding of how things work at that basic level was always really something I had a kind of passion for. Um, so that that just, you know, I think throughout my, my kind of career, that's always been a kind of core part of what I've liked, liked to do. Um, yeah, no, my sales director's got a degree in physics and uh, he always harps on about how nobody actually, like, understands how things work anymore and nobody makes anything <laughs> anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I think he's in the same boat as you. And then when you decided to do the PhD, was there a, a temptation to do it elsewhere or did Glasgow make sense? And and did you, this is a question I always ask and get different answers to, did you enjoy the experience of doing a PhD? <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so I'd always, I'd had a, a good relationship with the, the department at, at Glasgow through my, my whole, you know, um, undergraduate degree. I'd done like projects and different summer projects with them. So it was a kind of quite a natural fit just to sort of continue in, in with the PhD at that group. I did explore other options. You know, I went around different unis and applied to different places. Um, but in the end, that just felt like a, a natural, a natural fit for me to, to continue. Nice. Um, so that there, yeah, that was that was a kind of motivation. Did, did I did I enjoy it? Like kind of yes, yes and no in some sense because I I, I I was maybe like looking back now with hindsight, which is always you know a benefit. Um, I did I sort of switched. To a slightly different topic for my PhD, which I thought at the time was like, oh, this is a, like, really cool. No one's doing this. It's, it's going to be, you know, very interesting. Uh, and I think it was. It definitely was. But um, I put myself in a position where I was quite isolated because because no one else was working on it. But then I mean, I was basically kind of on my own. And my um, my supervisor at the time then also left after the first year. He got a job in the states, so I was in, I was like really alone at that point. So that that made it quite tough because I was he didn't really have that chance to sort of bounce ideas off people and and just have that discussion, which is really useful when you're um, kind of deep in some sort of bit of research. Yeah, no, I so, bet. Yeah, so that, it, was, it was it was challenging from that point of view. And is that a kind of I've not actually brought this up before, but is that a risk when you're choosing your kind of PhD topic to not go? 
like too nuanced or too left field. So like you just said, like you end up kind of a little bit isolated. Yeah, it's it's a risk, absolutely. And I think think it depends on how you sort of kind of react to that. It's like some people are completely fine and and really will enjoy just being left alone to do their own own thing. I think I definitely, through that process, realised I actually really enjoy being part of a team and and enjoy that collaboration and and sort of interaction aspect of things. So that, I think that's that's subsequently influenced quite a lot of what I've done um, since then. So, When you finished the PhD... Again, one of the topics that comes up quite a lot is some people kind of go down a, a vaguely similar route to what yeah. you did, and some people just say, "Absolutely not! I'm, I'm done with kind of academia for now. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm going into industry." Did you kind of weigh up both, or did you know the route you were going to go down? I, can, yeah, I definitely weighed up both. I mean, I, th- I think through that process of the PhD, I, I realised that I didn't want to, want to continue doing that sort of hardcore, like theoretical physics that, that I had done up to that point and um, yeah. so I looked at you know I looked at industry and had a few kind of a few offers but I then actually realized that a lot of my friends th- that I had at the university had um, gone into working with at CERN so that this like that large sort of particle physics lab that works in it sits in um, Switzerland that then got me I was like oh, that, that that seems like the kind of thing I want to do because it's kind of high profile project collaborations at the center of that it's all about like teamwork so I kind of that's so although I stayed in physics and research, it was actually quite a different space to what I was doing for my PhD. So I moved more into like the building of a lot of the infrastructure that we use that is now used today for that like large hadron collider uh, project. So I was moving. I really actually moved more into like sort of computing software that that type of space. It was still f- like physics kind of research, but it was not the, maybe the the kind of hardcore stuff that had been doing before. Um, nice. So that, that, that also then I guess has influenced what I've subsequently done. Um, yeah, I I don't know if it's a coincidence, or maybe you can tell me, but uh, I know three other heads of data science that all mm-hmm. spent a bit of time uh, at CERN and all have yeah. PhDs in physics of varying degrees. Like they're not all exactly the same, um, yeah. but they all spent. They actually crossed over, so they know each other from that. Um, yeah. But they're now all head of data science at like one's a big insurance company, one's a, a like data startup, and one's a, a like. Uh, consultancy almost yeah um, but yeah they've all got that background do you think being thrown into that kind of CERN research collaboration space do you think that's really helped a lot of people just because it's a it almost feels like you're working in a in an industry job yeah I, th- I think absolutely you're you're, you're and there you're, you're really I think you you get to see that you're part of a bigger project you're there's lots of people and no one knows like everything that's going on that you see you really have to you know, work collaborate communicate with people and that I think being thrown in there really helps when you then maybe actually move into sort of, quotes proper industry you, you, you there are a lot of parallels that you can take from that I mean it's not it's not identical but there's definitely um, overlaps um, nice. so yeah absolutely I think it helps massively and just being I think quite often even as you if you go into CERN as like a PhD student or a, or a, a young postdoc you, you get quite a lot of you can get quite a lot of exposure if you're good and you can then you can see that you can actually make an impact as well which i think gives people confidence that they can actually you know contribute to something um which again helps with, the, with that translation to industry yeah do you think it kind of depends on so like postdoc life setting you up for industry really just depends on what you're working on like it's because it, it, i feel like still sometimes people that come straight from PhD and maybe a few years postdoc when they're applying for jobs in industry, sometimes people are like, ah, well, they've not really done anything in like yeah. the quote, quote unquote real world. But yeah. quite, a, quite a lot of the time they have. 
Yeah, I think it really depends what you're working on. Like, there's people that I've, you know, was working with at CERN who were really, like, really deep in a kind of like operational type of role through the research, and that 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 kind of experience of you know keeping things up and running, just you know just keeping the whole the whole show going. I think that really translates across quite quite well. Um, the people are also looking for funding a lot at the time, so there's not maybe the same like commercial awareness that you have. You need an industry, but there's still some awareness of, of finances and um, that 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 side of things, which I think probably people need to do more more and better to just draw out of their their CV and kind of make that case when they're having you know interviews and having those chats for for jobs. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, I think like you just said, like some of the stuff you did at CERN, like they're using now. So essentially, you delivered a at scale complex industry project just in a yeah. slightly different guise. So it just depends yeah, how. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it depends how you phrase it. And, and again, like you said earlier, it depends on what you actually do. So yeah, you spent kind of like, I don't know, seven or eight years in various kind of postdoc roles, yeah. uh, Edinburgh, Switzerland, CERN, like you said. Was there a chance that that kind of academic life could have been the route you went down and like you, you could see projects and things to work on that you thought, do you know what, I could do this, I mean, maybe forever, maybe for a lot longer? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I'd applied, applied for like a, like a fellowship, um, which I got um, through um, SDFC, which is like this uh, UK government sort of arms length funding agency. So it, that was kind of within you know my area. It was quite a fairly high profile thing to get, and that was kind of the kind of route to move something more permanent within um, the UK kind of academic environment. But and ultimately, the kind of funding after that that finished, the funding really dried up. And I think through like family reasons, I was quite keen to stay in the UK, in Scotland. Um, so I had kind of opportunities to move either down to England or, or abroad again, but just, yeah, I really felt that I didn't want to do that at that, at that point. So that was the kind of, although I would have loved to have stayed doing that, that work, that was really the kind of the motivation to look for something outside of uh, academia. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And do you think, and again, you'll be much better placed than I would be, but do you think there's an argument that they could try and make that postdoc life slightly easier for people in that funding could be easier to come by, like a bit more guarantee on location or even duration? Because a lot of people we've had on the show said like, there's things they would have probably done, but the thought of like applying again after two years or being moved from Edinburgh to Southampton, like for the next yeah. bit of work, like it just doesn't suit a lot of people, right? So, like, yeah. is, is there anything you can do, or is that just par for the course? Yeah, it's, I, I think I think that there, there, there's more support that can be given for sort of like early careers, you know, people um, and and giving them a trying to give them sort of slightly longer contracts than just those like two two years, even even one year in some cases. I think that that's a real block. I think more support for also for women and people returning from you know, like mat leave or whatever. There's, like there are schemes around to help with that, but there's definitely more support uh, required there. Yeah, because yeah, I feel like there's definitely like a disconnect between like postdoc and industry sometimes where you feel like you could almost get the best of both worlds quite easily if people just yeah. maybe talked a bit more. Yeah, um, but that, I mean, that's not... Uh, that's not exclusive to um, like physics and, and data stuff. Yeah. That's, just, that, that, that's like kind of all yeah. over the UK and, and education. I mean, um, the, the, the things might also improve now with you know, know COVID and working from home. That there's maybe there's, there's that there's less of a need to necessarily be based at a physical location. So depends what you're what you're doing. If you need, if you need access to like high expensive lab equipment to do the experiments, then that doesn't work. But for many people doing kind of data analysis type 
roles, that's maybe more of an option which could, you know, that flexibility could be useful. Yeah, no, 100%. And then just before we jump into industry, um, which is kind of my next note, did was the kind of lure of being a data scientist in industry, was that something that you'd seen kind of like colleagues do, friends do, and, and it made sense as the next step? Or did you just know that the work that you'd been doing would lend itself quite nicely to the problems that data scientists have to solve? Yeah, but I think by both. I think obviously throughout my kind of career I'd always been had one eye on on industry and sort of looking at the trends of the, the jobs coming up so I knew that data science was a kind of you know definitely on, on the rise um, I knew a few people had moved into that so it was definitely something I was I always knew was an option and something that would interest me and I, yeah, the, the types of things that I'd been working on I, I knew they weren't necessarily going to translate one-to-one but I think a lot of the kind of base techniques and the stats and the maths does having that based knowledge really helps when you move into into data science yeah no i always remember when i first started working on data science rules probably like 2015 16 when it really started to kind of take off the my sales director again mentioned that like in physics you just kind of have to deal with large data sets and maths and stats and like that's like that's the baseline like that's just to get whatever you're doing working um so that will lend itself well to data science because that's kind of obviously a big part of it yeah absolutely um so no it's interesting and and like i said i mean there's the three guys i know from cern who kind of similar backgrounds all in a similar role so um obviously there's uh there's some merit in it but yeah so it was kind of like summer 2018 or so um you joined uh rbs uh, as a data scientist um was there something about kind of either financial services or RBS in particular that kind of piqued your interest from a data science point of view? Because I'm sure you could have applied your skills and knowledge to any industry. Yeah, I, I, I think the kind of, you know, I went to several kind of uh, recruitment events since you know, talk, talking to various people and they kind of run up to that to that point. And yeah, there, was, there were loads of opportunities. I think what kind of got me with, with NatWest was, Taking a step back, and I never really thought of myself as you know I'm a like a, a banking guy, a finance guy. That that was was never really in my kind of my kind of DNA. But I think what attracted me to to NatWest was the the, the scale of the opportunity. So it's sort of a, I mean, do the kind of sales pitch, but it's it's like a I think it processes like a third of all sterling transactions in the world. So like what that means for me, from a data guy, is that there's lots of like transactions, there's lots of big data sources to get your teeth into. So whether that's using that for, you know, trying to combat fraud or look for money laundering or, you know, just trying to understand better how your customers interact with us. There's a lot of quite chunky problems there, which yeah. I think are quite, quite interesting from a, just a pure sort of data point of view. And I think it's a really well-known brand. You know, I think there's a real opportunity to impact people, like real people as well, which is, I think the combination of those two things was quite, quite attractive to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And actually, I had a um, I had a meeting with a client the other day that you wouldn't necessarily like earmark as like a interesting data company, um, but when you actually go boil it down, they've got a huge market share, huge amount of customers across various different brands, um, like huge challenges and like engaging them in this new kind of like COVID online world. Yeah. Um, so, from an actual data point of view, like what you just said, like if you drill it down, there's there's loads of stuff. Like, and I actually said to the recruitment team that a lot of data scientists are more bothered about that than they are 
like what industry it's in because yeah. they want they just they want they want enough data and enough interesting problems to like have fun with rather than yeah. just be stuck on the same thing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm glad you said it, but obviously for a different industry, but still it's the same uh, the same kind of premise. Um, and yeah, so this is more for my own ignorance, but NatWest did they take over like like a part of RBS brand or like what is the what is the kind of like story with the two companies? It, it, it just just historical. So um, RBS um, and NatWest like merged. Uh, I, I, I forget actually when it was, but it was you know it's sort of early two thousands that, that that all happened. I should. I should I should have checked Wikipedia before I came. The the so so um, RBS uh, Group was the kind of the, the main like legal entity, and under underneath that you have Royal Bank of Scotland, NatWest in England, Coots, and, and other kind of smaller brands that you may have may have heard of, like you know, private banks and yeah. military banks. Um, so then, just earlier last the last year, they chose to rename the group from RBS Group to to NatWest Group, basically yeah. because you know NatWest the, that brand is much. Has you know many more customers in in England. I think there was you know an element of maybe you know doing away from the past in terms of you know what happened in the financial crisis and all, all that kind of stuff. But it was it was really trying to align the I guess the, the dominant brand with with the with the group essentially, and then a bit of, a bit of rebranding that happened with, with that. Nice. Um... And so, yeah, you mean you joined in summer 2018, and we're sitting kind of early 2021, and you're and you're the head of data science for for data innovation. Um, I suppose tell us a little bit about your role and kind of you've touched on it already with some of the things that you can get involved in, but it's, it's kind of some of the work that that you and the team kind of get up to. So it's a big now. It's a big big group, as you can imagine. There's lots of different areas. You've know, got a retail bank, got a commercial bank, and an investment bank. And, and they all they, they work separately in some sense, but from a kind of data lens, we're trying to sort of pull everything together into a single um, uh, platform. So we have a kind of hub and spoke type model where my innovation team sits in the center, and then we, we collaborate really closely with data scientists and engineers in, in those different areas of the bank. Um, so yeah. that, that's, that's quite, I guess, uh, we've been on a journey over the past few years with you know, the use of data and, and these kind of types of techniques. So we're really kind of push, trying to push the whole organization up the curve in terms of what tools it has available, you know, the infrastructure, platforms, the, the methods that, it's, that are being applied to solve problems. And I think my team is really at the forefront of doing that. Um, but all the other teams are really now really catching up really, really closely through that collaboration and community that we've built over the past few years. Where we can nice. really try and share code, share expertise, share um, share that knowledge. It is one of the things I was going to ask you, like, because it is such a huge company, and we work with other kind of really large companies, and sometimes data can be kind of siloed into like Greg and his four data scientists work on X, and then like if you wanted if you wanted something else done in a different office, it's like, ah, well, we don't know, like we don't talk to those people. Yeah, so I, I, that sounds like that. There's been big strides made to try and like. I don't know. Just open it up a little bit. Yeah, try, definitely. Uh, we're definitely trying to do that, and it's not, it's not, you know, by no means perfect, right? There's, there's always, you've, you've, it's, it's a kind of constant battle. You've always got to be kind of got to be on top of that to prevent that that siloed kind of look of uh, the world. Yeah. I think we're doing okay. Yeah, and we, we really, um, I you know, run this kind of community of practice within the organisation to pulls all the, the data scientists together, and yeah, we're all about. I think you know, kind of linking back to my, my kind of CERN of research days collaboration was always central to what i was doing there and sharing knowledge was you know fundamental so i'm really trying to bring the same sort of idea 
internal to the bank and making sure that people are open for discussion and debate and and sharing that that information yeah no i bet and um you might not be able to answer this given that uh they employ you but um with like a large financial services company there's I mean, there's such obvious uses for data, right? And I mean, you you could argue that like data scientists have been in the financial service world for forever, yeah. just in different yeah. guises. Yeah. But can it be quite hard for you and the and the team of data people to like get? I don't know if trust is the right word or like buy in, but because like you're dealing with real people, huge amounts of money, yeah. Um, and the potential for like massive fallout in the press, blah blah blah. Like mm-hmm. if you did something wrong, is there always a little bit of like? pull back when you're trying to get projects done or is it the case of just kind of slowly build up and show everyone what you can do and then you kind of just gain the trust yeah I th- yeah i think like that that trust word is a big a big thing for us so whenever we engage with a new a new area of the business you know it's always about kind of what can we do to get that kind of early win so that they, they start to show that we they understand that we can deliver and that we can get something done for them a big kind of push from the kind of education point of view so we talk stakeholders through okay so this is the basic this is what data science can do for you we try and translate it you know precision recall accuracy whatever the metric is we're going to use to solve the problem or to optimize the the model we try and you know obviously translate that into their business language so that translates into you know some efficiency in their business process or some bottom line revenue so we're, we're always very conscious to try and explain that stuff and we've definitely had failures where that's not worked because the stakeholders just maybe not quite ready to really embrace what we're trying to do but also had a lot of really good successes where the, that model has, has worked really well nice and i think, no, another thing, from, from the kind of privacy you know ethics point of view that's like absolutely front and center to what we do you know we're always looking at um how do we make sure we're doing using data in the most appropriate way for the business problem at hand. We've got a lot of, you know, checks and balances in place that make sure that we're not, you know, um, misusing data, we're doing it in an ethical way. And I think through the work that we're trying to do with, um, which we might come on to, is to get ML ML operations and having ML kind of embedded into, you know, business processes, we're really trying to be much, um, really robust in how we are constantly monitoring the performance of any kind of machine learning type solution so that we're always aware of if it's starting to drift from what we expect, then we can have, again, those checks and balances in place to to correct it. Nice. No, I love that you said uh, getting the small wins because it's something that comes up time and time again. And when I speak to data scientists and I kind of, if they're telling me that they've struggled to get things kind of through the business or things get stuck a little bit, I'm always, I'm always kind of wary as to kind of, well, have you done, I suppose your end of the bargain, like have you explained it in yeah. simple terms, like you just said, and even just, okay, I think it probably comes with experience now, right? So like if you went into a new company and like there was, a, if you're a new data scientist, there's a temptation to like go for the biggest, most complex, coolest project you can possibly yeah. do. Whereas in reality, like if someone like you was going in, you'd probably pick something relatively simple, but okay. you know, it would, it, you know that the, someone in the business would love it. So like, yeah. you, that's how you get the buy-in right so no it comes up a lot uh, and i'm glad that it keeps coming up as well um so no that's good um jumping on to uh hiring so you guys have hired a lot from what i can tell um and, and since you've been there it's been a kind of constant cycle of growing the team yeah. um it's always about the hot topic on the show is is there anything that you've learned from i don't know even when you were applying to be 
a data scientist, but I suppose now that you're growing the team at a decent scale, like, is there anything you've learned when hiring data scientists that you would kind of advise other people or any kind of top tips that you've kind of, I don't know, held close when you're hiring? Um, yeah, I think a few things. So yeah, we're, we're hiring a lot. You know, there's a big push in the organization to have more specialism in terms of data engineering, data science. So we're really, yeah, we're, it's like a continual push to get get good people into the organization. Um, I think from like top tips, always like you know keep it simple. You know the number of like ten page CV, CVs that you get sent over with like every minute detail of someone's past. You know it's just it's so easy just to to bend that immediately. Um, you know so keep it simple one one two pages and make sure you're drawing out the kind of the key kind of tech stack that you've you've been using the key kind of. Um, techniques that you've applied and and maybe sort of bring it to life with some you know, some little description about the business the you know business problem or process that you've you've impacted. But yeah, I think keeping it simple is really important because you know you, you see hundreds of CVs all the time and it's just it's, the moment you see something that's badly formatted in Word, you know, with multiple multiple pages, it's just it's the easiest decision in the world just to, to bin that one. So yeah, I think it's. It gets hard as well, right, when you're a data scientist and maybe you get, like, too excited with the technology or the models and, like, you list everything ever. And this is true of job specs as well, but, like, I suppose if any candidates are listening, like, you want to pull out a few of the basics so you as the data science manager know that you can test them on, like, their Python abilities and or some basic stats. But you're, I mean, you're probably not going to sit and delve in deep into this crazy, like deep learning model they built like you're just not gonna have time right so like it's that's yeah the basics like you just said much much more important yeah Um, i think i think also like the number of cvs i get i mean it must be you know just people chancing their arm but they've done like one you know coursera course in data science and then they they suddenly think they can apply for like more senior data science jobs so i think maybe an element of just sort of be realistic about what you're applying for as well so you've got to have a bit of a track record um whether it's you know just doing a few online courses isn't always uh, sufficient so yeah you got to kind of build up your skills and, and get some more examples and and try and help a business like a real yeah. business if, if you can, if you can um, yeah. yeah no it's, it's good and uh, when you've been building your own team like have you found it quite easy to understand kind of what skills you need and how to kind of put them together into a team. So obviously you said at CERN there was lots of collaboration. I'm sure there yeah. was some people were amazing at X, other people were amazing at Y. You kind of bring yeah. them together. Has that stood you in good stead in, in the bank as well? Yeah, I, I think so. So, you know, initially when we started, the team was really small. So it was really just a case of so get some bodies in, people who know, so have a kind of fairly, I guess, a generalist view of what data science is and how it can start to answer business problems. As we've yeah. expanded, we've really then started to sort of, to get some specialism in place and understand, okay, so the, you know this guy's he's really good at visualization and, and you know and building reports and dashboards. This person's really about experimentation and trying all the crazy wacky new things. This guy's about more like DevOps and ML engineering and getting something through into live. And then this person's more about keeping that up and running and kind of ML operations. So really tried to sort of structure the, the, my team and now other teams in that kind of mold where they're becoming more specialized in each of the, of the different a data science life life cycle stages. Yeah. Um. So that that's that, that's really an important f- focus for me as we've scaled up um the the teams. 
No, that makes sense. I mean, I've seen, uh, I don't know if you've, you would agree with this in your team or just generally across the bank, but the, the kind of data science boom of 2016 to maybe 2018 ish, when like everybody wanted a data scientist in their team, yeah. no matter what, no matter what they did. Yeah. Um, that, that's flipped on its head now. And every company that pretty much we work with will ask us about data engineers. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wishing back for the data science days because there's much more, there's many more people that could be a very good data scientist. Um, like you can find them doing a PhD in physics, or they maybe maybe they're doing some really cool statistical work in their current business, and they yeah. just need a bit of a, a bit of a help with some coding or something like that. Whereas like data engineers, especially when you're talking about what you've mentioned, like the ML ops, it's it's a bit of a fine art, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit, yeah. I mean, we, we, I mean, we try and in, in my team, it's you know we have really have projects where it's data scientists and data engineers working like hand in hand on the, on, on the, on the project. And, but finding really good data engineers is, it's, um, it's tricky. You know, there's a lot of folk who have a lot of really good, like data warehousing, SQL experience, that kind of thing. But we're, we're looking for a bit more than, than just that for data engineers. It's people who know, know, know about DevOps, know, know how to do like streaming uh, platforms. There's a whole host of other, other stuff that we're looking, um, looking at beyond just yeah. SQL. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, so, no, I mean, at least you're building a great team. I mean, you, you just hired Andy McMahon, so you can't get them all right, but I'm sure it'll be, uh, I'm sure it'll be all right. I'm sure you won't mind me saying that. So, yeah, no, it looks great, and it's really interesting to see kind of like, I think when I speak to people and they ask about data science, like financial services is always one of those ones where I thought like you could, you could do a lot um, it would just take the right business and the right kind of leadership. Um, so no, it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. From a kind of community, and, and you mentioned actually already that you've built a kind of data community within the bank to all talk to each other and collaborate. Um, you've also spoken at various events and meetups. So you spoke at one of our um, Scott Mill events, uh, obviously on the show today as well. So is that kind of like networking, community element, collaboration, is that something you're keen to really kind of like really do a lot of or if you can force yourself to do it to get better at it for example yeah I'm, so i've always i mean again linking back to the, the kind of research stuff that you know that kind of collaboration presenting at meetings was always just like par for the course for what we did so i was really keen to try and continue that sort of work in, in industry obviously you've got to be careful we can't give all your latest greatest results to like you know meetups but i think just talking in general terms about you know, recruitment and, and, and life cycle stages and different techniques that you can apply is, is really useful. Useful to sort of have that connection with other people to learn from them. I think really useful from my point of view to, you know, identify like maybe new people who you want to get into the organization and have a bit of a kind of pipeline potentially building up. Um, and then just, yeah, just staying grounded in, in those latest uh, techniques. So yeah, I really, really encourage that. Um, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned Andy's name. So that was, you know, definitely brought him on board as, you know, someone who has very experienced in that space he's really well connected um, and i yeah. want to you know, see him do do more of that and have that kind of leadership in, in in my team yeah no and it's bang on i mean i appreciate it it can sound uh, a bit like conceited when i say things like this but coming to the events like the scott ml series or uh any kind of meetups i suppose the amount of stories that i've heard from people that have connected with someone and like maybe 
eight months down the line ended up joining their business yeah. and normally not through us as well so it's not like it's a sales pitch from my point of view like it's just organic relationships yeah um so a lot of people when i approach them and say oh do you want to be on the podcast or do you want to speak at the events they're kind of like oh, i don't really know what's in it for us like i don't want to give away our secrets and i always kind of have to try and say like it's, it's not really about that yeah definitely like, absolutely it's all about that, yeah. that, that connection it's funny you mentioned andy because like before i joined that west i was um I started to go to some meetups in Edinburgh to sort of just to get a feel for the, the local community. And I actually yeah. saw Andy present uh, at one of those at the, the data lab um, in, its, in its old location. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was actually my first time I'd actually met Andy and had a, had a chat with him afterwards. So that was, you know, before I joined. So it's kind of funny how things have now kind of panned out in terms of me bringing them into my team. Um, but it just shows you the kind of power that you can have through those, those, uh, those meetups. No, 100%. There's still people that, like, that I've found jobs for three, four years ago from the meetups that we do. And then they'll get in touch saying like, oh, my friend is looking for work or I'm actually thinking about moving on. And like, it's all just from that rather yeah. than kind of what people maybe imagine like the job of like connecting people is like, it is often a bit, it's a bit different. Yeah. And just, I suppose to finish off actually. So um, it came up in a conversation I had the other day and it made me remember your, uh, your talk at our Scott Mill event. Um, and I'm pretty sure you talked about um, kind of like explainability in, in machine learning and AI. And I think you posted something relatively recently about it as well. For anyone that's listening who maybe works in data science and hasn't heard that kind of phrase or maybe doesn't understand why it's important, I mean, what is kind of like explainable AI f- for you? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a pretty hot topic just now in, in that kind of like that space. So you know, we often have these you know machine learning or AI applications, models that, that sit at, at, at the heart of what we do. So you're trying to predict like is this transaction fraudulent or not, or or whatever. So a big aspect of that is, so how do you actually explain what that black box is doing? So it, it takes a lot of data as input and then gives you a decision as, at the end, but you maybe don't really understand what's going on inside. So there are techniques that you can use in the kind of explainable AI space that help you kind of shine a light inside that box. And, and there's a, you know, each technique has pros and cons and, you can you maybe have to use a few of them to understand what's what's happening, but it's really it's a useful way for like a data scientist to understand a bit better what they've built. But then I think it's quite a useful tool that you can then use to explain to your stakeholders or your customers, or in my case, like the regulators about what it is that you're doing. So yeah. it's it's a really big focus for us at the moment. Is it's fine to build something, but then how do you then explain what it's doing so that you have confidence that it's still it's doing kind of what you think it's doing, and then how do you then monitor that? You know, every day or every every month, so that it, you, you're still continually checking that it's doing uh, what you expect it to be doing. Um, yeah. So yeah, so we're working with uh, Edinburgh University um, on on that. So they they kind of basically wrote a paper for us that helped outline what those different techniques are and how they can be applied. And then they're developing some training for us as well that we're going to roll out internally. Um, so it's just trying to raise awareness within our own community about how these things can be used and why it's important to consider them when you're building something. Um, and, I, and hopefully I think that that knowledge can also be shared not only within the bank, but also um, outside the bank as well. Nice. And do you think is one of the harder parts of your job or maybe a kind of more junior data scientist is really trying to understand like what they're building and why they're building it. And on the flip side of that, trying to explain it to kind of non-technical people who are either the people using it or the people who need to understand it the most. Like, is it hard to sometimes be a data scientist building like clever models and techniques that are having an impact on 
X amount of customers across the bank, but trying to explain to your stakeholder why you've done it that yeah. way and, and also even just trying to explain to your internal team, like, I think this is the yeah. best way to do it because of yeah. X. Yeah, I think that it's definitely a challenge. I think a lot of people, when they come in, you know, maybe they've, they've been at, um, done a master's or worked in some like startup, but they can maybe use like the, the latest, greatest technique, some some deep neural network to, to build some really performant, um, you know, uh, classifier or, or whatever. And then, but when it comes to actually to work applying that stuff in like financial services or other industries, sometimes that really top, top performing thing that you built isn't actually the most useful because it, it is hard to explain and it doesn't really, although it gives you the you know the best bottom line or the best performance, that's not always the only factor you have to consider. So sometimes people then have to sort of, once, once they get understand that, they can then sort of better design something from the, the ground up, which can be more simple and then, well, it's simpler from a kind of data science technique point of view, but, but much more robust in terms of a kind of explainability point of view. So sometimes there is a bit of like a switch that has to be turned on in someone's head when, when, they, when they start thinking about this stuff. That not always the, is the most best, most performing system um, the one you're after because of this, these other, other constraints that you have. Yeah, no, 100%. And I suppose just to, to finish off the show then, what do you think the kind of rest of 2021 looks like for you and the team like is there is there certain things that you really want to try and like stride forward with is it growing the team like what do you think it looks like yeah so it's going to be a, a, another busy year so definitely growing the, the team that's something like not just my team but the, the overall organization we're really looking for more data engineers data scientists so please look out on our website for him um, for uh, any jobs that come up there's, there's going to be lots of that uh, over this year um i think the really big thing for us is over the, over 2020, we made a lot of progress in you know that kind of route to life. So, like a data scientist may build something in a notebook, which is great. But then, how do you actually get that like into the business in a kind of robust way? <clears throat> excuse me. And um, we're really having a lot of focus um, now on that kind of DevOps and how how you make a data scientist's output. How do you actually get that through? All the, the various, you know, kind of technical, um, technological processes you have to do to, to get it into live in a system, whether it's a, in a streaming process or a, a batch process. There's a whole host of steps that you have to take, and we're really sort of building up our expertise in that space so that it's much easier for us to sort of release something. And I think a lot of organisations are having the same sort of challenges just now because it's yeah. Again, if you, if you look back 20, 2016, everyone wanted a data scientist, but now you actually want people who know how to do DevOps and how to run stuff, and that, so that that's how we're changing both our, sort of our our you know tech stack to help with that, our people to help with that, and also the, the the internal processes to really facilitate this in a in a much more sort of streamlined way. So that that's, yeah. that's a big focus for me in the moment. No, that makes sense. I mean, I remember one of the earlier podcasts we did was a, a small company called Fuzzy Labs um, in Manchester. And those guys come from a, one of them's like a DevOps guy. And one of them is a really, really good software engineer that has done some more AI projects. Yeah. And when they set up that business, the whole idea was like, we're going to run data science projects like a software engineer in a DevOps yeah. project. And yeah. I think I think that's maybe one of the reasons they've done quite well quite quickly is because they've really focused on that from the start. Whereas I think you're, I think you're right, a lot of companies are maybe not playing catch up, that's maybe not fair, but like they've realized the importance of it. Um, So getting that team in place and getting those data scientists who either want to be involved on that side and like the ML ops side or recruiting into the team, it's it's quite tricky. So yeah, it takes a little bit of time to really like to nail that down. Yeah, 
absolutely. So it's and it's it's something that I think is also constantly evolving. You know, we're, we're always looking for you know, what, what's the next thing we need to sort of think about to really bake this into the, the overall business. And then it's we're constantly constantly learning, which is well. I, again, that's always something I like to see in myself and other people that they're always looking to pick up the new tools and, and understand how to modify them to really fit what we need to, to do. Yeah. No, I think that's one of the great things about even like my job recruiting in data, like people's CVs and projects they've been doing, they changed way more than maybe some other areas because it's still evolving so quickly and so rapidly that like you almost don't want to see someone that's done the same thing for the last three years because yeah. so much has changed in those three years that like you'd be a bit worried that they've not maybe, it doesn't always have to be wholesale things, but just little things where they've just tweaked something or they've learned something new doing a project. So yeah, I think you're right. That that kind of constant evolution in that data side of things is going to be really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, really it, it kind of excited to see what happens with the team and, and uh, where you guys get to. Um, and we'll definitely kind of get you back on here um, in the future or hopefully when we can do in-person events. Yeah, that'd be nice. Um, that would be amazing. I remember sitting in March or April when someone said, are you going to do a remote version of the ML series? And I was like, nah, I'll probably just hold it out till the end of summer. <laughs> like, and we'll be fine. And now here we are in February. I know. So I'm still toying with the idea of a remote one, but at the same time, I don't know if, if I'll if I'll just hold out. But yeah, getting you guys involved in that would be amazing. Yeah, happy happy to help out. I really enjoy this event. Perfect. Thanks for joining, Greg. Yeah, thank you.